thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, leading publishers of books, directories, educational guides and magazines aimed at schools in the UK and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning and welcome to the Sunday Social on Teachers Talk Radio. We're just waiting for Yasmin to join now, which she has, so I'll invite Yasmin in to speak. Welcome to the Sunday Social. Um, today's Sunday Social with Yasmin Omar is Why Do Somali Boys Underachieve? And without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Yasmin now. Hi, Tom. Thank you so, so much for handing over to me. Um, and thank you also for starting this. Um, so I'm really excited for this show. It's actually my first show of 2023. So a belated Happy New Year, everyone. Um, I'm just going to make sure that Omar joins this session. But um, to just give you a bit of a lowdown, because I know that a lot of people listen to this after the recording finishes. Um, today's show is going to be about the underachievement of Somali boys and also um, interviewing a Somali head teacher. I think he's the only one that I'm aware of and I'm really excited to be interviewing him. So um, we'll just wait for him to join. But if there's anyone that has any questions today, um, please make sure that you ask. Um, you're more than welcome to take part in this. I want it to be as interactive as possible. So thank you everyone so far that has joined and a belated Happy New Year. I'll just say that again. So um, let's just make sure that Omar gets into this session so that I can start with him. In the meantime, um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Somali students, particularly Somali boys. I can see that Bahja is in this session as well. Oh, so we've got Omar here. Okay, I'm just going to get Omar up as a speaker. So Omar, just um, accept the request to speak if you can see it. Okay, whilst Omar gets connected, I'm just going to quickly talk a little bit about the background of Somali boys. Okay, so although not not a lot of research has been done on Somali students, there are a few generalised studies looking at Somali pupils, particularly Somali boys in inner city London schools, and they seem to always echo the same findings. And these findings show that Somali boys across various boroughs are a the most underachieving ethnic minority group in a lot of London schools. B, in various schools, have a gap of up to 50% lower attainment than the top achieving groups. C, have previously been highlighted by Ofsted as an underachieving group. And D, in many schools, are highlighted as a key group that form part of whole school improvement plans. So I thought, what better person to get than a Somali head teacher? Omar, can you hear me? Just let me know if you can by unmuting your mic. Hi, apologies. Um, yes, I can hear you, Yasmin. Great, no problem. No problem at all. So, yeah, um, Omar, my first question for you, are you the only Somali head teacher that you know of in England? Yeah, I, I'm certainly the only one that I'm I'm aware of. Uh, yeah. And not, not, not to say that, you know, there aren't others out there. I, I'm pretty sure there are. And, but it just I just haven't come across them, Yasmin. Yeah, no, I told, same for me, yeah. same for me. I've not come across any other Somali head teacher. And when I first heard about you, because, uh, you know, we used to work in the same borough, I was honestly so surprised and happy to see that there was a Somali head teacher at a neighbouring school. Honestly, it meant a lot to me as a Somali student growing up. I never had Somali teachers at school. And I know that's also a very similar experience for a lot of the um, Somali students that I grew up around. Okay, so... Mm. 
Um, Omar, the first, I mean, the next question I wanted to ask you was if you could introduce yourself. So, like, when did you first get into teaching? Yeah, so um, thank you, first and foremost, um, inviting me to, you know, to come on, on this, you know, very important platform and, you know, and uh, sort of to talk about this very particular pertinent topic, which we'll get to get on to, uh, I'm sure, in a minute. Uh, yeah, if I if I just introduce myself, so you know I've sort of I'm you know I'm a, I'm an East End lad, and you know you know raised in the East End of London. I've more or less been you know in East London uh, you know the majority of my life, apart from my sort of early years where I grew up in the northeast of England, um, in a place called Middlesbrough, which I'm not sure uh, a lot of people. Um, well, people will be familiar with, but uh, it had a very uh, small Somali community there. So a lot of the Somali uh, community who may be listening to this may not be aware of. And, uh, you know, you know, you know, my parents, you know, in the late eighties made a very conscious decision to, to move to London so that they can give, you know, myself and, you know, know, my siblings a, a better opportunity because it's sort of in those days in the Northeast, there wasn't much of a prospect in terms of jobs. Uh, and um, so, you know, they made that decision. We moved down to uh, the East end of uh, London in the late eighties. And I've, I've been here ever since. So, you know, and I was a bit of a rebel in school, didn't do really well in school uh, or as well as I could have liked, I would have liked in school. And, but also um, growing up and growing up as a as an as, as someone who was uh, EAL, someone who was black, uh, I didn't really get the support that I needed when I was in school. I, I you know I, you know I can comfortably say that in school when I was in school I was actually let down, and and whenever I speak I always talk about you know my experience uh, as a youngster in school. And how much uh, I wasn't supported when I was in school, and how much I was let down, and that kind of spurred me on um, to, you know, to become a teacher. And uh, when when I finished university um, in, in two thousand and three, I actually didn't know what I wanted to do, but I I I wanted to do something about education in education. I wanted to be in education. I didn't know what it was. That I wanted to be at that point. I didn't want to become a teacher, so I rang up my old school. I spoke to one of my uh, science teacher. Uh, his name was Mr. Roland, who is actually the head of uh, computer science uh, at my old school. And I said to him, "I think I want to become a teacher. Uh, can I come and spend a couple of days in the school just to get an experience of what it's like being a teacher?" And uh, I went there and uh, spent, in fact, I spent a week in the school and I really, really enjoyed it. And at that point, I said to myself, I definitely want to become a teacher. I also had the, uh, at the back of my mind, my experience of uh, of being in school and, and how much I felt I was let down and not supported and not given the support that I needed in order to develop. So I said to myself, I definitely want to become a teacher and uh, I want to help youngsters and uh, and then and, and then yeah, I applied for a PGCE, and uh, and the rest is history, you know. Um, the rest is history, and uh, I definitely made the right choice. Uh, one thing that I would have liked uh, when I was in uh, sort of at, you know at university or planning to do uh, teaching and become a teacher is two things. One, 
and seeing uh, you know teachers from sort of my background my community people that look like me who were teachers to, uh, as role models to influence me and uh, to become a teacher and also um, some really supportive career advice because you know when you're 16 17 18 19 you know you don't want to you don't know what to do uh, and if you've got that uh, career advice to say how about this or how about you know uh, what you're talented in you know uh, I remember my my career advice when I was uh, doing my A-levels and planning to go to university was what do you want to do <laughs> uh, and at that age you need a bit more than that this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! No, Omar, I totally agree with you. And honestly, I love that. I love that, you know, your upbringing kind of shaped why you wanted to go into teaching because you felt let down at school. I feel like that's a really important thread to pick up on. I know that a lot of the people that will be listening to this can probably relate to that in some way. I know that, you know, it's quite a common experience among Somali students, especially boys, um, to feel let down in school. And, you know, that that is a thread that I will come back to and pick up on. So also, everyone, thank you, everyone that's listening. If you want to ask a question, please just request the mic. Um, you're more than welcome to join in the conversation. You don't even have to ask a question. If you want to share your thoughts, you're more than welcome to join, jump in at any point. OK, so Omar, the next question I have for you is, can you tell us um, where now, which bar in London, or which school you're a head teacher at? And also, what other roles did you hold in teaching before that? Yeah, so I'm, I, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, I, I live in Newham and most of most of my teaching uh, experience has been you know, uh, been in, in schools in Newham. And when I sort of um, applied for my PGCE, and I did I did my teaching placements in two schools in Newham, uh, St. Bonaventures and Forest Gate Community School. And uh, I really, really enjoyed both experiences. They were very, they're, they're both in the same borough, literally half a mile between them, but very, very different schools. And I really enjoy, I enjoyed my experience. I then... I then did my NQT year. In those days, it used to be called NQT. Now it's called ECT at, at Cumberland School and in, in Plasto. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And I was there for a year. And uh, while, while I was there, a job came up in, in Forest Gate, which uh, I was a, 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 you know, a student teacher there the year before. So I applied for it and uh, I went back to... to to Forest Gate School in I think it was that was in 2008 I, I started um, being a teacher of ICT um, and I was computer science those days it used to be called ICT uh, and, 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 I, and I really really love the experience at Forest Gate School uh, Forest Gate is a school which is very very close to my heart I was there for 12 years uh, two of my children go there you know it's part of our trust that no, that I'm part of so I stayed there for 12 years and within within, within the first literally three months of being there I, I, I got I got a promotion those days we operated a house system 
and I, and I got a, a, a small TLR to organize assemblies and form time. And I really, really enjoyed it. It was a really, really good experience. And then sort of six months after that, I, I got promoted to a deputy director of a house, the, the house system that the school had. And again, and that was a lovely experience. Uh, and I just, I, I mean, people were saying to me, like, you know, uh, you know, you work really hard. And I actually didn't think that I did. I just did what I sort of, what was in my sort of DNA and, you know, improving the life chances of the students, making sure my lessons were really well planned and I was uh, delivering really good lessons. Uh, but I was getting recognised. That was the that was the most important thing. I was getting recognised by the senior management uh, in terms of the impact that I was making. And um, and then and then I did that role for for for, for a number of years and, th- and and then we had a new head teacher who came in in 2011 and uh, he changed the school from a vertical tutor group system to a um, to a year group and 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 then I became a head of year uh, or head of learning uh, that was my role and I picked up a, a really really challenging year group uh, year nines. And, and and for me that was the most enjoyable time uh, for me as a, 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 as a as a as a head of learning or head of year i had that year group for for, for three years I, I took them from year nine all the way to year 11 and that year when they finished in 2014 the school got its best ever gcse results uh, those days it was five uh, five uh, atcs including Latin and english and i think we got like 70 percent and that was like unheard of and for, for me and for us as a school that was like the turning point after that we became an academy and uh, the rest was history and then and then when I saw that year through in 2014 I uh, I was prom- you know I was rewarded for my hard work and, and I, be- I became an assistant head teacher uh, and I was an assistant head teacher for for three years uh, and uh, again a, amazing amazing experience and um, because uh, for me, even though I found the transition really, really challenging, and it was a it was a memorable time, uh, because rather than sort of being a middle leader and focusing on one particular area of school improvement, I was actually suddenly looking after departments. I was looking after year groups. I was looking after uh, areas that I wasn't familiar with. So the experience that I got was amazing, and. And and then in 2019, uh, so, uh, I, you know, sorry, not 2019, 2017. So so, so 2017, I became a, a deputy head teacher again in the same school, uh, and and I was in charge of safeguarding and pastoral, and and uh, and, and that was again uh, another step up, but again another ex- uh, opportunity that I really relished and I really experienced. And then in 2019, our our, our trust grew. Uh, We, uh, another school, Cumberland Community School, which was a school that I was in uh, NQT uh, many, many years ago, joined our trust and and I was given the opportunity to become a head teacher there. So I I did a full circle and uh, I rejoined the school that I was an NQT many, many years ago, and I, I I went there as a head teacher, and for me, that was the proudest moment. And and actually seeing teachers there who were there uh, at the time, and teachers who we were NQTs together who were there was really, really enjoyable. And that was an opportunity um, to you know 
uh, race standards in that school because Cumberland, you know, was a school that was underachieving, didn't do well. The outcomes for students were really poor. Uh, and uh, my mission uh, was to, you know, uh, bring that school up uh, and make sure that the students weren't being let down and the students were leaving with really good GCSEs. And I was there for, for two and a half years. Uh, and this year, that's gone. Um, you know, Cumberland got its first ever GCSE grades under sort of our trust and you know my leadership. And um, it, 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 it was the, the sixth highest performing school in the whole of Newham. And those of you who, who know Newham, Newham's got some really, really good schools. And in terms of Progress 8 school, uh, Progress 8 school, Cumberland was number six this year. Uh, and when I took over in 2019, I think it got the worst or second worst ever GCSE results. So we've had huge impact, uh, you know, you know, in you know, in the short term time that we were there. And then, and then another school joined our trust this year in April uh, 2021. And uh, you know, I was asked. Um, you know, based on, you know, what I've done, you know, in the past and my experience and, you know, my track record of turning around underperforming schools, I was asked to go and, uh, you know, lead on that school as an executive head teacher. So the school's called Petty Academy. It's in Hackney. And, uh, you know, I've been there since April 2022. And whilst I've really, really enjoyed my experience of being in that school um, for the last so eight months, uh, it's also been really, really challenging because what I'm trying to do is trying to uh, bring in the same systems uh, and the same school improvement strategies that's worked in both Cumberland and Forest Gate that I'm familiar with to raise standards. And uh, it's a, you know, it's a big challenge, but it's one that I'm really enjoying and one I'm really relishing. Omar, honestly, that's really inspiring and it is really nice to hear about, you know, your career from the start right the way up to where you are. I know it is also quite common for teachers to often join schools that they've trained at, so it's really nice that, you know, you were once a trainee in a school and as part of the same trust have gone on to be a head teacher at two of the schools in that trust. It's really, really good to hear. Um, we've actually got two questions that have come in uh, so far from Bahja, who's listening in this show. Um, she wanted to ask you, do... Did you always want to be a head teacher, and do you ever feel imposter syndrome? Did, did I? Uh, so, so, so the answer to that question is no. I've never considered myself uh, or wanted to be a head teacher. Um, it, it, it's something that I've just got into, and it's something that I've actually been really, really pushed um, to do by. You know, my CEO, Simon Elliott, uh, you know, who I've worked with for 11 years. And he joined uh, while I was at Forest Gate in 2011. Uh, and, and he said to me, he said, he said to me, I remember him saying to me, uh, Omar, one day I'll see you as a head teacher. And I, and I said to him, uh, Simon, you know, uh, you must be joking. You know, you, don't be silly. Don't be silly. People like me never become head teachers. And I really, really meant that because... Um, I, I did, first, f f f you know, firstly, I, you know, I, I, I know, you know, how much, you know, energy and work and commitment that you have to put in. Being a head teacher really, really takes over your life. And the only, as a head teacher, you can't switch off. You're constantly on, 
you know, on alert if anything happens. I mean, for example, I mean, this year in the middle of the summer holidays, we, we you know, we had a fire in our school and I, and I had to, you know, put my summer holidays on hold and, uh, and you know, and, and literally for the, for, for the last three weeks of the summer, I had to work on that to try to get the school up and running for the 1st of September. So these things, you've always got at the back of your mind. So it's that responsibility but 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 it's also the 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 other thing is um, you know to be able to be given that opportunity you know I know people out there who are more than capable of um, being head teachers, being leaders, uh, running big organisations. But but you know the, the opportunity, be, them being afforded the opportunity is quite rare. For me, I was quite lucky because a I worked really hard and. Um, and uh, you know my talent and my hard work was recognised and picked up, and I and I and I was also supported. Uh, and uh, you know, you know, my CEO Simon Elliott, you know, who you know is the most incredible person that I've ever worked with and I've ever known. Uh, but he's also the most sort of you know the fairest, and and he 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 understands people and he plays to people's strengths. And I've tried to mould myself. Uh, you know, uh, like he, uh, you know, on his personality, and I, you know, you know, I, I'm I'm also trying to give people that opportunity, uh, but I'm also trying to stay humble, uh, and also give something back to, to you know to my community uh, in East London, Newham, uh, and also the, the you know the children, the children that I serve that who are under my you know um, my leadership. Because for me, uh, when I often go out and as I said I live in Newham and I often when I when I when I'm out Stratford or Westfield you know I often get stopped by students that I've taught you know five six ten years ago and uh, it, it makes me really proud when I see them doing really really well and when I also think that I've had an impact on on their success it makes me even feel better so uh, no, I didn't always uh, want to become a head teacher, but when the opportunity came, I grabbed it with both hands. Oh, I love that, honestly, Omar. So now I thought um, it would be great to move into talking a little bit about Somali boys. Um, I remember earlier as well, you did say that, um, you know, you were a bit of a rebel at school. So, you know, maybe you can give um, a first hand account or even um, one as your view as, you know, a professional in teaching but um i just thought really quickly for everyone that's listening i would share some of the stats on somalis so i think the first thing that's important to say is there are there aren't actually accurate stats on somalis in the uk for various reasons um we will get into that but um the off the office for national statistics in 2015 so this would have been quite a few years ago um say there are approximately 115,000 somalis in the uk and over half of those are thought to be in london um, and when I used to work at Ealing Council about half a decade ago, they did also say that uh, it was believed the Somali population made up 0.04% of the population in England. And in terms of stats that are specific to Somali kids, there isn't actually a lot of research. I mentioned this at the start. I'll just say it again, since a lot of people have joined us since. There aren't actually a lot of stats on uh, Somali boys, or there's not a lot of uh, research that's been done. But generally, in the research that has been conducted, a lot of the time, the findings have been, A, that the most underachieving ethnic group, minority group in schools are Somali boys. Um, 
in various schools, there's a gap of over 50% lower attainment amongst Somali groups when you compare them to the top achieving groups. Uh, Somali boys have previously been highlighted by Ofsted as an underachieving group and in many schools are highlighted as a key group that form part of a whole school improvement plan. I can see that there are loads of teachers that are listening and also loads of other professionals in um, other fields that work with Somali kids. So, you know, if anyone at any point wants to jump in and share their thoughts, you're more than welcome to. You can share your own experiences in school or you can share your experiences as a professional in the working world. So I just wanted to ask you, Omar, what would you say? And this is quite general. I know that, you know, it's it is a really broad topic. But what would you say are some of the barriers that Somali boys in particular face in schools? Uh, I, I think um, uh, I'll, I'll come back to uh, Somalis in a minute. But but, but generally, obviously, Somalis uh, fall under the sort of the ethnic minority um sort of category uh, and quite a lot of the ethnic minority children generally uh, face similar issues and in particular um, you know in 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 in, uh, you know in my experience of uh, you know uh, working in Newham and living in Newham I I, I know you know you know one of the you know the, the biggest issues that you know children generally whether they're ethnic minority or not or non-ethnic minority face is you know you know th- th- there's issues with you know um with, 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 you know with housing you know there's there's issues with you know children coming from social economic background for me and um, you know those are the you know the biggest issues that generally children face in in, in a borough like Newham or Hackney or Tower Hamlet and um, and when they're ethnic minority, uh, usually, um, you know, they come from families which are maybe sort of first generation immigrants. And there's there's a lack of understanding in terms of the education system. You know, you know, I remember when I was growing up and, um, you know, you know, my parents were literate. You know, they didn't speak uh, much English or they had very uh, limited understanding of the English language and how the education system works. And for them, that I go to school was, that's it. I mean, you know, they, they never used to have a conversation with me about how was school, what you learn, what you enjoy, what subjects are you finding difficult. So there was that lack of involvement when it comes to the, to the, to the understanding of the education. And now, sort of fast forward, you know, 30 years, uh, uh, you know, you know, there's there's other issues. There's there's issues. For example, one of the biggest issues that we face here in Newham is the issue, the issues with overcrowding and housing and kids not having a proper space to study. I think that is a that is something that the that as a head teacher that I deal with on a day in day out basis. You know, you 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 have so you know. Uh, kids that maybe live in a studio flat or they live in a hotel and that really has an effect on them and we're also going through quite a lot of you know um, crisis in terms of the economics and the cost of living and uh, kids not being able to afford luxuries like um, you know access to you know books or materials or for example extra homework club or just like basic stuff like food those Things usually are, you know, have a, have, you know, have a big effect on, you know, families in general and, and, and anyone, 
who comes from uh, sort of ethnic minority or families from low socioeconomic background. In terms of in, in, in terms of Somalis, um, you know, you know, back in two thousand and nine, I think, um, when I, when, I, when I was doing my uh, research uh, for my masters, I actually did a bit of work around why do Somali children generally underachieve. And at those times, I found out quite a few things. One of the things that I found out was um, the, you know, the lack of, you know, role models, um, you know, for children and seeing, um, you know, people that look like them or people that represent their community or, or generally having access to mentoring and getting someone to mentor you and, and give you experience in terms of what you need or, or proper career guidance, you know, you know, that was one of the things that was missing. Um, and although, you know, that was then, uh, you know, things are, are, are getting better uh, because, you know, even in my school, I work with organizations, for example, uh, there's an organization that I work with called the Badu. And what they do is they, they, they give children, you know, that mentoring and guidance, especially kids who maybe come from a, you know, a single parent family, and and also uh, in the Somali community, one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of the children um, come from single parent families, uh, and and that is a that that is that is a, that is an issue because if we're talking about boys in particular, I mean I've got three of them uh, myself, and uh, you know when they get to sort of twelve, thirteen, fourteen. You actually, they actually need a male role model to talk to, to guide them, to to be in contact with their teachers, to find out how they're doing academically, to sign them up for football, do physical activities. You know, those things don't underestimate the impact that you know having a father figure at home uh, has, you know, on children in generally, but in particular boys. And so for me, and um, there's a lot of um, children from the Somali community in particular that I'm aware of that come from single-parent families and that has a detrimental uh, effect on them because if a male figure is not there, you know, boys um, will get into gangs, will get into misdemeanor, will get into undesired things and that will take them away from their focus uh, of education and do well and having an aspiration to do well. And, uh, and I've seen that in the past, um, and, you know, a lot of times. In my experience of working with Somali boys and I just, just going back and rattling in my brain, uh, I very rarely, rarely see boys or girls who, who, you know, get into gangs and, um, you know, fall off the fall off track in terms of being focused. If both parents are there and both parents are actively involved in their life, I've seen so many incidents where you know um, you've got a mother who's probably got five or six kids, uh, uh, and you know, Yasmin, uh, a lot of our people from our community have quite a lot of kids. And uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it becomes very, very difficult for, for a mother, bless her, to be able to handle teenage, teenagers. When, where may, maybe the job is easier when you've got maybe uh, one or two, but when you've got five or six, then they've all got different needs and different, 
interest and different um, things which are competing for their attention and their need. It's very difficult for one person, you know, let alone two. Um, so, you know, there are challenges, um, but I think the the social economic factors do have a, a huge impact on, on the direction that these kids, these particular boys, who are very, very energetic, and, and you know, and as I said, I've got three of them, and they do take a lot of my time, uh, and to be able to keep them rounded, keep them focused, keep them off trouble and keep them busy, it does take a huge amount of effort and time. No, honestly, Omar, there's a lot that you said that I think is really valuable and that I think a lot of the people that are listening will really relate to. Um, as I said earlier, guys, if there's anyone who wants to jump in at any point to share their views, you're more than welcome to. You can share your own first-hand experiences. You can put a question to Omar. Um, you're more than welcome to do that. I think, Omar, there's a lot what you said there that's really true. Like in Newham, I know that there is a lot of overcrowding um, and that a lot of the students can't afford to buy resources or have a quieter space. Um, I remember when I was at school, I think I was the last school year to ever get EMA. For anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's education maintenance allowance that was given to, I think, um, children whose parents had below a certain um, household income. It did really save me. I used to always spend my EMA on all the resources I need, which meant, you know, I was able to keep up with my peers in many ways at school and did go on to do really well. And I would credit EMA um, as one of many reasons, uh, well, as one of many different ways in which I was supported, including by like my mom, etc. But um, it was something that really helped me. And I have noticed that, you know, a lot of the children now have different attitudes to um, A-levels. Um, and not only are the subjects a lot harder uh, now, a lot of them, a lot of the children who are growing up in the same kind of socioeconomic circumstances as I was a decade ago, don't have any of the um, government support that was in place for students like me. Um, and in terms of Omar, what you said about, um, you know, children getting recruited into gangs, um, I used to work at Ealing Council and I came across a lot of Somali boys that were part of things like County Lines. Um, I'm sure a lot of people know what County Lines is. And um, it's essentially when a, you know, a child or anyone rather but it, you know it affects children a lot uh carry drugs or you know illicit substances on behalf of like a gang um and take them to other areas um other like parts of the country to sell them etc and um i think what i found a lot of the time was um the children that were more likely to get recruited into things like county lines were the children whose time after school was unaccounted for so you know how in a lot of schools um you know safeguarding teams often place a huge importance on calling parents if a child hasn't arrived to school what basically I found was um, if a child was walking home let's just say they live you know 10 minutes from their school so 10 minute walk home if a child was arriving 45 minutes an hour later an hour and a half later not only a lot of the time were their parents not aware if they'd had a detention and because you know if they if it, it was so normal, if it was the norm for them to not, not arrive in those 10 minutes, a lot of the time they could get away with something like an hour's detention because nobody would be checking where they were in that time. And um, equally, a lot more dangerous things would be happening. So a lot of the time, I know schools on inset days use things like, you know, chicken shop grooming where kids go into chicken shops and, you know, someone says, hi, you know, come deal these drugs for me in like, you know, another part of the country. But what often would happen was because these children wouldn't be rushing home because nobody would be checking what time they got home um, they would then come into contact with people that were actually quite dangerous um, so you know I'm more than happy to talk more about county lines and how that affects you know Somali boys as Omar kind of touched on it um, but I can see that Miss Sawa has requested to speak 
Um, so is there anything you wanted to share with us, Sarah? Um, hi, Yasmin. Um, thank you so much for speaking. I think I, I was just listening to some of the conversation um, and I, f I found I found it really interesting when we speak about the external influences in relation to gangs. But from my own experience, I guess as somebody, I'm, I mean, I'm closest to the Bangladeshi community, so that's probably where I draw my understanding. And there's a critical lack of attainment with our young Bengali boys as well. But one of the things that I notice is what can only be referred to as like chronic babying that happens in a way that just does not seem to happen with girls. And it, it's a kind of, it's a culture of like excuses and saying, oh, it's okay. And, and allowing for these young boys to effectively act as men in their households. And from a school's perspective, it's something that I wonder how much influence we can realistically have. So this year I'm responsible for parental engagement. And it's something I see time and time again when I'm having conversations with parents and I can say, Mrs. X, your, uh, your son has not submitted homework for three months. And I'll have a parent profusely apologizing to me. And I wonder, and then, and then straight away, the same thing will happen the following week. And again, of course, it's that lack of accountability at home but I wonder what we as teachers and as leaders in schools can really do to change that culture because these boys are you know often very well fed they're very well clothed and um, whether you know obviously there's the gang affiliations and whatnot but in fact a lot of them aren't they are just boys at home often with playstations that have freedom and access to pretty much whatever they want but there's still a real lack of boundaries. And maybe that's, and I'm speaking for, for my community as well, so I can't, you know, um, cast aspersions on a different community, but I wonder what we can do as leaders from certain communities to kind of encourage our older boys more to account. Oh, Sarah, thank you so much. That's honestly such a great point. Um, and an amazing question. And I will throw in there, guys. Um, I I previously worked with Sarah Sawa, and she's actually my biggest role model in teaching. So, Omar, I'll hand over that question to you to answer. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Sarah's... Sarah's is it Sarah? It is or, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Sarah, 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 lovely to meet you. Yeah, you, you've actually raised a really good point. Uh, I, and by the way... Um, the you know the Somali community and the Bangladeshi community same, uh, face very similar challenges, but you, you but but I really like your point about you know are we are we molecuddling you know our boys too often and and, and you know we, we you know we need to make them more independent and what can we do you know as you know as school teachers or school leaders uh, to be able to you know make sure that you know they take a bit more responsibility in terms of their education i i i think you know you know if i try to sort of answer that question uh, I, I in schools generally I, I think it's really important that you know you know as teachers and uh, you know and, and uh, as school leaders you know we have that regular you know communications or line, lines of communications with parents about you know expectations and having high standards and, and making sure that they hold their children to account you know in, in terms of you know what's expected and and, 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 and not settling for mediocre 
And some parents do really find that quite difficult um, because, you know, th- there's often issues at home, you know, and in terms of, you know, you know, has this child got, you know, the right space to study? This is based on my experience of what I've seen. Has this, has a child, has the ch- you know, has this child got, a, you know, a, a laptop, you know, to be able to access their homework and do their homework? Have they got a space uh, at home? Do they, do they, do they, do, do they have access to support, you know, if they get, you know, stuck with homework and is there someone there who can help them? So if the answer to all those questions are, 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 are yes and, and there's no issues and children are not performing and they're not doing what they're meant to be doing, uh, you know, I think we need to eyeball the parents and, and say to the parents that they need to take responsibility for their child's education and making sure they're doing what they're meant to be doing. And, and, but also, some of the parents need, um, you know, what I would call not, not parenting skills because, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be in a position to, you know, to, to tell a parent how they should be raising their children, but how to, you know, set boundaries and how, and how to hold their children to account. And, and, and you know, and uh, schools do need to have that conversation with parents. I often, I mean, I'm not liked for it, you know, uh, but you know, whenever I you know speak to parents, you know, I you know I I, I say to parents that, um, look, I've got five children who are school age, and uh, you know, when my child comes home and and says X Y and Z happened or so and so said this to me or this teacher said to me, I don't take their word for it. I, I find out the facts. And if I find out that, that my child is not doing what they're meant to be doing for school, whether it's their learning, whether it's their, their, their behavior, their attitude or their conduct, you know, you know, I have that conversation with them and I, and I hold them to account. Often I've seen parents coming straight to school and say, my child has said so-and-so and, you know, you're doing it. And it's, it's, it's usually not the case. So we do need to educate parents. We do need to give them a different perspective. And we do need to have the conversation with them to say, to them that you know you know conversation with them and say to them you know you should be doing things in a slightly different uh, way and sometimes it it is awkward and it is difficult uh, as a profession having that conversation with the parents but sometimes we've got to say to the parents you know you should be you know you should be leading the way and uh, where I work, I've got a really, really good family support worker who works with some of these families. But I, I think for us as professionals, as teachers in the front line, we sometimes have to pick up the phone and, I, 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 you know, and call these parents to a meeting if the children haven't got any excuse and they're not meeting our expectations. And we've got to be honest with the parents, I think. Thank you, Omar. I love that. And actually, I wanted to put a question to both you and to Sarah. Um, You know, um, the Somali community, so I was reading a study, and obviously as a Somali also, I know that there is a high rate of unemployment in our communities. Um, And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, but I think this is also the case in East London for Bangladeshi communities in uh, Tower Hamlets, Newham, etc., in the past at least. And um, I wanted to ask you both, do you think that you know unemployment rates in both communities might play 
a hand in parental attitudes because one thing I also find uh, really interesting in every school I've worked at and also in every friend you know every teacher friend that I have that I've supported uh, with a Somali student I find that they tend to say the same thing a lot of the time which is that they have such um, kind parents who are like so different to their sons and you know like just wanted to ask um, before I'll come back to you both uh, Bahja and Osman I can see that you've requested to speak I will come back to you both but yeah Omar and Sarah just wanted to put that out there to you um, uh, go on Sarah you go first um, okay so I think the the recent uh, round Joseph Roundtree report said that Bangladeshis in the UK earn 10 pence to the pound um, <laughs> and I, I, I think that that really tells us a lot of what we need to know in terms of the kinds of the, the the level the skills and the, the and the jobs that are being held by our by our community and in a way it's kind of to do with access and understanding so i i really agree wholeheartedly with omar about like the difficult conversations that need to be had but actually one of the things that i think we're starting to do more in schools now and it, i think we're kind of fumbling around in the dark a little bit about how best to do this but it's also about educating and equipping our parents with the skills to be able to do those things so it you know so when we find out that the child does have a laptop the child does have internet my first question to the parent is is that laptop in their bedroom or is it on the dining table or is it in the kitchen where you can see what they're doing and also it's asking parents and honestly it makes me squirm so much because I'm speaking to uh, mothers and fathers who have children and I don't but it's kind of asking the difficult questions around are you prepared to also do the work because you know working with teenagers is immensely difficult raising them must be so much harder and it's kind of as school leaders finding the right balance between empathy and understanding but also trying to bring our parents with us on this whole educational journey to like create aspiration and to create achievement. I think that's something that I know I struggle with but it's something that we as schools I think we're just still on the back foot of so it's definitely all of those things that you mentioned Yasmin really play a key part in 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 the reasons why but in a way I feel as though the reasons why are really important and important to understand but now that as a school community and I think the teaching community as a whole, like we'll never disregard the impact that poverty and, you know, skill has on attainment. I want, I think now where it's really time for us to start thinking about the next steps as how do we address that? And how do we actually move beyond acknowledging that those things play a, a, a factor and are a massive obstruction? How do we change those things to ensure that Actually, it doesn't. It doesn't continue to be an obstruction in the years to come. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you uh, more, Sarah. I think you've made some really valuable points. But from, uh, I'm, I'm going to answer that question in a slightly different angle. Uh, as a parent, um, and also as a school leader as well, and as a teacher, and uh, because. It's sometimes it, it. I mean, it's it. It's really, really, especially in the modern era, it is really, really challenging. You know, you know, bringing up kids. You know, uh, and also trying to have a have a career as well and to provide for these children. It is. It is two competing factors. But but you know, um, 
the the I, I, I don't think um, I mean you know historically poverty and attainment has been linked you know you know I, I, you know as you know as, as as factors that depend on one another but from my experience of working in schools in Neum in the last 15 years I, I, I genuinely do think um, some of these kids, I, I mean, I've seen so many kids and so many examples of kids who come from really, really poor background achieving so well, okay? And I, I find that children who haven't had the luxuries and uh, who haven't been brought up with a silver spoon in their mouth tend to work a lot harder than those kids who were brought up with luxuries. That's my experience, because in Newham, I, I've seen kids uh, that come from sort of families of sort of five or six or maybe seven or eight, and they do really, really well. They do really, really what what what, what they what they've experienced and what they've had is good, hardworking parents who put them, you know, who've given them the support that they need. And but the 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 good thing is just trying to compare now, uh, whether it's the Somali community, whether it's the Bangladeshi community, whether it's the sort of the other ethnic minority community, what I've seen now uh, is a lot of those kids who sort of maybe sort of 10, 12, 13, 14 years ago were leaving schools uh, with really poor GCSEs are actually doing really, really well because, you know, standards have improved, schools have got better, there's a lot more support, and so you know, you know, in in essence, and I, I I think poverty, you know, you know, can be a barrier to success uh, if the children are not given the support that they need from home and the school, the school and the home need to work together. Parents need to make their number one priority as the kids um, because if um, the sort of the upbringing uh, when the children are young, if that is not handled with a lot of hard work and due care and attention, when the children get older, they will get uh, into all those undesired attractions that are around them that can put them off track, I think. I love that, honestly, both um, Omar and Sarah. Thank you both. Um, just stay there. Um, I wanted to say, when I worked at the council, one thing I remember about Somali parents was a lot of them didn't actually realise because I think schooling in Somali was different in the sense that if you were to fail your end of year exams, you would have to repeat the year. And so um, for the first time ever, at the time I was 21, I came across parents who thought their children were doing really well in school because they were progressing every year. So just because a child went from, you know, year 9 to year 10 and then year 10 to year 11, they thought, OK, well, that means that they're doing really well at school. And and often when it was too late would then discover that actually their child is massively underperforming and you know they sometimes had never attended so you know like this touches on both what, what you've both said Oman and Sarah sometimes they wouldn't ever attend parents evening and they wouldn't really engage with the school um, often because they had a language barrier or they didn't really understand um, or that you know they had their suspicions of the school or even sometimes thought that the school was doing well uh, or thought their student I mean their their child sorry was doing well 
um, at school because they were just going up every year because of age and they didn't realise it, it had nothing to do with attainment. So Bahja, I'll come on to you in a second. But first, I just want to tell you about uh, John Cat Educational. Um, this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. You can visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development um, and I think that is also pinned at the top so Bahja did you have a question Bahja by the way guys is a teacher she's been a long-serving teacher at a school in uh, North London she's been ahead of year for very many years and like you said earlier Omar she's also had quite challenging year groups so Bahja Hi, I want to um, sort of touch upon about the underachievement and why they could possibly be underachieving and I think it's also the lack of expectation or the bar being so low for boys in general but also Somali boys I think even if you think in our classrooms when a boy has a really nice presentation in a book it's like oh my god it's amazing and a girl you just expect it from her so I think in schools and also in some homes the expectations for boys are quite low and if and I've got even currently I've got year 11s and we're pushing through the eight like we're pushing through to get to the exam and you've got the lower academic level of the boys are well my teacher doesn't think I'm going to pass and you've got some teachers turning around saying that I don't understand why you picked my subject because you're not trying so I think one of the reasons why they're underachieve is because they're allowed to underachieve because we don't have much um, of a high expectations of them and they don't have anything else to look at yes the majority I think is it has gotten better than previous times because there's a lot more positive role models around and there's like an entire other generation and there's loads of professionals about that kids can actually have um, a conversation with. They are, they've got people, cousins and uncles and aunties who are in professional jobs than maybe when I was growing up or when we were growing up, we didn't have that. So it's a lot better. But I still think the level of expectations and the bar is still quite low. Um, for Somali boys in comparison to the Somali girls. Thank you so much, Bahja. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people that are listening that really agree with that. If there's anyone that wants to come up as a speaker, you're also more than welcome to share your experiences with us. Um, just, you know, growing up Somali, I had a lot of friends who I knew, not actually, not just Somalis, oh. but a lot of different ethnic minority groups where there was a disparity between how boys and girls were treated. Um, when I was growing up, um, my brother and I, my brother's two years older than me, we were treated exactly the same. Like I remember we had the same chores. If he was allowed out, I was also allowed out, etc. cetera. Um, but I do also remember when it came to things like accountability. So, um, you know, if, you know, one of us was going to be held accountable for what, you know, what, chores were done safe my mum wasn't around then I remember it would the responsibility would often fall on me and my brother would kind of get off lightly and I knew that was you know the case for a lot of children um, in lots of different communities so if there's anybody that wanted to share I can see that I think it's Muna has come up to speak is there anything you wanted to say oh uh, I saw that I got requested to speak um so I was listening into your conversation um so basically, um, I now work in Qatar and I have noticed that I am struggling with imposter syndrome by being a young person, uh, telling older members of staff things think like deadlines. I do suffer from severe imposter syndrome. So what can I do to help battle it? 
Oh, that's a great question. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll pass it on to, I guess, the Somali head teacher. Uh, look, <clears throat> look, um, I, I, I think what my, my advice to you, is it Mona? Uh, is that... It's Munissa. Munissa. Munissa, <laughs> good, good question. Look, I, I, I think um, what you need to do is you need to believe in your own ability Um and you need to, you, you know, my dad always used to say to me when I was young, if you see someone doing something really bad, you've got to, you've, you've got to do something about it. And, and if you can't do anything about it, you, you have to, you have to hate it, like, you know, within yourself and like, you know, and, you know, and, and, and take, take yourself out of the situation. What I would say to you in response to your question is, I think you have to believe in your own ability. You always have to, as a teacher, there's a responsibility, uh, you know, on us to, 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 you know, to, to make sure that, you know, we are essentially, these children are under our care and you need to, you, you as a teacher who's been entrusted in this very important role have, have to always give 100% of your effort into whatever that, you know, you're doing, whether it's, you know, delivering lesson, whether it's, um, you know, looking after, you know, a particular, you know, scheme of work or etc. You have to, you, you, I always used to say that unless before I left work in the, in, in the evening, um, I, I used to feel that, I used to feel really bad unless I absolutely cleared all of my inbox, responded to all of my parents, etc, etc, because I didn't want things uh, hanging over my mind. So you have to believe in your own ability. Yeah, and, and if you see people not performing or not doing things that they're meant to be doing you need to you need, you need to tell them and say look you know you're supposed to be doing x y and you're not doing that or you're not doing this to the best of your ability and you have to call people out whether you're a junior person or not you have to be able to um you know you know call people out when they're not meant when they're doing when they're not doing what they're meant to be doing and i when i was a when i when i was an assistant head um I, I was line managed by by a deputy head who who wasn't great at the time, and this is my own experience. And uh, you know, I went up to the head teacher and, and and I said to the head teacher, you know, I've got so many ideas. I want to do X, Y, and Z. I feel like I'm not getting anywhere because uh, I wasn't being developed. I wasn't, you know, I go to line management meetings and you know. You know, I come up with X, Y, and Z. I want to do this. I want to implement this. And it was like my line manager would always say, yeah, all right, let, you know, leave it with me. Let me think about it. And a week goes past and another week goes past. And eventually I got really frustrated. Uh, and I went up to the head teacher and I said to the head teacher, look, can you line manage me? Like, and uh, he actually respected me for that because uh, I, I wanted to give so much more. I wanted to... Uh, make so much improvement but I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere because the person above me who's line managing me didn't have the same drive and push that I did uh, and, uh, and 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 the head teacher took me under his wing and and, and, and and we had a really really good relationship so sometimes you have to push the boat but within the professional uh, you know uh, boundary and uh, if you want to really improve things uh, you can I genuinely think you can uh, so I think that, that that's the answer to my question uh, and uh, can I just? I, I think the, the the previous person also made a really important point about boys and girls uh, generally, uh, which which I th which just from my own experience. I mean, I've got three boys and uh, I've got two girls, and I constantly, uh, you know, and, and I'm constantly, you know, you know, 
pushing my boys, chasing them for their homework, chasing them to do X, Y, and Z. And actually, uh, for my two girls, I've actually never actually had the conversation with them and told them, right, get your homework out, sit on the table, do this. So it is something that is with boys. But hey, you know, boys and girls are different. We mustn't give up on the boys. We need to also push them and give them that drive because um, girls generally um, are are more driven. They're more organized. uh, But we need to also make sure our boys are also on that same wavelength as well. Thank you so much, Omar. And thank you, Munissa, as well, for your question. If you have any more, you're welcome to just stay there as a speaker. Um, and, you know, Omar, I completely agree with what you just said there. And I did want to touch on what Bah just said next, which is, you know, why is there such a disparity between Somali girls and Somali boys? Like, you know, it's not something that just happens at one school. It's something that's very common, especially in inner city London, where there have been studies. Um, I know it's the case on, on an anecdotal level when I talk to a lot of my teacher friends. Why is there such a big disparity between um, Somali girls and boys? And that is open to any of you to answer. Um, Yasmin, I, I, I can't speak, again, I can't speak from for the Somali community, but I can speak uh, for Bangladeshi one. I think there are parallels. I feel as though, for myself as a Bangladeshi girl, the stakes were so much higher um, for girls. You know, it was, it was, there was no kind of, there was no flexibility and I'm not saying that it's the same now it's probably very very different now but when I was going to school you either did really well and you did and you succeeded academically or no worries it was fine you can get married and you know doing well at school was your passport to make sure that you didn't have to fall into that camp and you know lots of my peers did get married and they were very happy and they have you know wonderful lives but there definitely was a sense amongst myself and my friends that not achieving in school was not an option. And I guess we need to repackage that because I, you know, I think that that was a really terrible mindset that our parents' generation had adopted at that time. And we all make jokes about it now, but we need to repackage that and, and, you know, sell it to our young people that not succeeding is not an option. And I think it's, it's really hard as educators because we in schools we're always selling what I think is the myth of meritocracy it's this whole idea of if you work hard enough you will definitely do well but the statistics of what happens in the world argue directly against that you know we just have to look at the number of young black men that are incarcerated and we can look at you know the impact of racism in our society we know that those things exist and I guess it's striking the balance between shielding our young people from that and making sure that school is a bubble where they can feel meritocracy, but also reminding them that there is no other option other than to be brilliant. And it's, I think somebody mentioned earlier about, you know, not having those low expectations, ensuring those high expectations are really, really consistent because success is the only option. I think us. Um, the Somali society is quite is a matriarchal society, and if you think about um, mothers are a lot harsher on their daughters, and then they're a lot softer on their sons, and fathers are a lot harsher on their sons than their daughters. And I think where the majority of households 
have got mainly the mothers are involved while the mother's mainly involved in the kids education um the mom is a lot more harsher on the daughter naturally and the son is able to potentially sort of be able to sort of tell the mom i'm doing all right i'm doing all right as long as he's at home or as long as he's upstairs in his room on his computer then he must be doing work um and i think where there isn't that much of a check-in on the Somali boys by the mothers, it isn't, it it allows them to fall for the crack. And where, like I said, in schools, there might be lower expectations. Um, when, the mother, when the parents find out it's too late, then it gets to year 11 and all of a sudden we're trying to sort of rush to get those minimum grade fours when that child could have actually gotten uh, grade eight or nine uh, based on their potential in primary school. Thank you both, Sarah and Bahja. I think um, what you both said has a lot of truth to it. I totally agree. And Sarah, I know that you're speaking um, about the Bangladeshi community, but as you said, there are a lot of parallels. And I think that a lot of what you said, you know, does relate a lot to Somalis as well. And same with you, Bahja. Like, I think that's a really interesting take. Um, If there's anyone that wants to contribute, wants to share their view or wants to ask a question, you're more than welcome to come up um, as a speaker. So, um, Omar, I wanted to come back to you and to ask you um, a little bit about the statistics on Somalis in the sense that um, my experience, um, and I'm often referring to before I was a teacher, because as a teacher, um, you know, I was, I mean, before this year, I was predominantly a classroom teacher, but I didn't actually have access to um, a lot of the detailed statistics or how they were collected about students. Um, But before my time in teaching, when I worked at the council, I was really aware that the statistics on Somalis weren't really reliable. A lot of the time, um, stats on Somali kids was masked by being lumped together with other African groups or some schools didn't have an option for Somali. They just had the option for black African or a lot of parents actually wouldn't accurately record the ethnicity of their student or their child um, because of their kind of reservations towards school and, you know, their views on things like institutional racism. So I just kind of wanted to ask you, um, because I know this will be listened to um, by parents, uh, after this recording ends, I just wanted to ask you, what would you say to Somali parents when it comes to, you know, a school needing to keep accurate records on them? What what advice would you give to them, and why would you say it's important to have accurate records? Yeah, uh, look, you know, my, my, my you know my experience um, of of this particular topic uh, is quite interesting actually because. And just just going through school data, you, you know, I've seen Somali kids um, identified as sort of Black African, Black British, Arab, others. Literally, they in one particular um, scenario that I can uh, I can think back to. They were they they popped up in at least six different uh, you know uh, ethnicity groups, and. Uh, and, and the issue with that is when parents come in, you know, as you said, uh, and they fill out the, the the admission form, they can tick whatever they want, you know, and uh, and and usually that's the record that the, the you know the school keeps. And usually, when you are doing you know assessment forecast and you're looking at trends, uh, one of the key indicators that you look at is uh, certain things like free school meals, uh, people premium, uh, ethnicity. 
and and if you then look at a particular ethnicity group, for example, the, the Somalis, and it's a very very small um, population size, then you will treat those as outliers. And the travesty, travesty with that is because you've got them popping up in so many different uh, uh, sub uh, uh, groups, it becomes very, very difficult to to draw trends or to be able to um, target particular eth- ethnicities. So what I would say to parents is, uh, I, I think it is really, really important that they. You know the you know the record keeping and the and the recording of ethnicity is is accurate because it is important for schools to be able to uh, draw trends because even at you know at DFE level uh, ethnicity breakdown is really really important and what the DFE has done now uh, which is quite interesting is that it, it's amalgamated quite a lot of those um, subgroups into six major ethnic groups. Uh, from for the, so for them to look at it from a strategic point of view, but still, I come back to the point that uh, the importance of selecting the right ethnicity group, but also uh, for parents to be able to engage with the school and ask the school questions about their children uh, and say to the school, you know, you know, what are they doing, you know, for for that particular ethnicity group, whether it's the Bengali, Pakistani, Somali. Parents should be able to, you know, hold school to account in terms of what are they doing to support the children of any ethnic group that they are, you know, concerned about. Because unless parents are asking these questions and unless parents are engaging with the school, some schools would gloss over, you know, certain things. But if there are organisations or if there are particular parents or particular forums who are engaging with the schools... And I know there are, and there's more and more these days, and holding the school to account and asking them difficult questions about, you know, providing, you know, uh, you know, saying to them, for example, the Bangladeshi community in Newham is a very substantial uh, community. What is the school doing to support children who are underachieving? Do they know who those kids are? Or, for example, the Somali community. But the issue is, if the data is inaccurate and the data is misleading, those conversations can become quite challenging, I would say. Yeah, Omar, honestly, I totally agree with you. Thank you for that. And I'm also going to read out what Fatima has said as response to Bahja. She said, I agree with Bahja. I didn't realise how boys are raised it impacts on how they perform at school. Boys are typically raised with very low expectations and girls have to work a lot harder to receive praise. So it seems to be, you know, a common thread in um, a lot of families and, you know, across the Somali community as well as other communities as well. And I think what you've said there, Omar, is really important what you've touched on that, you know, parents really need to be involved in school or some important issues can get, um, you know, glossed over. I think um, to put just a bit more of a serious uh, turn on that, though I know this isn't common, um, I do sometimes still get contacted by parents in West London who've had uh, difficult experiences with a school or with uh, a child, and it's almost always a Somali boy. You know, in the times I've dealt with exclusions, whether they're fixed term or permanent, I think in only two cases it was ever a Somali girl. It was always um, Somali boys. And I remember this time last year, there was actually a case, um, obviously I won't say any names, won't say the school or the student, but it was a case of a boy who came home, um, he came home with, burns on 
on his like eyebrows and like the front of his hair and on the, like the cuffs of his shirt and he'd actually had an hour's detention after school and um, when his mum asked him what happened he said that he was told off for something that had happened in science and um, that he um, he was told off for something that had happened in science and therefore was kept for a detention after school. But his mum took him straight to the hospital where they basically concluded he actually had burns. And um, when the mum, so the school had actually not contacted the mum at all. And when the mum went to the school the next day, they basically overemphasised uh, his behaviour and said he was misbehaving. Um, and that's essentially what happened. And, you know, he was sanctioned immediately for this as it was in their policy that students could be kept until X amount of time, etc. Um but what then transpired was another student had essentially recorded what had happened and they'd been in the science practical where um, they'd uh, what the technician had, you know, I'd seen the video. She'd essentially dumped all of these methane bubbles, which, as a lot of science teachers know, isn't actually a practical that the CLEAPS guidance recommends is done any longer. Um, but she dumped loads of methane bubbles onto his arms and then it was set alight. And rather than if, because his hands weren't... Um, wet enough in the um, proper way it actually burnt his arms and all the way up kind of to his face and his hair just briefly like it was a you know a, a second the flame but obviously he still got burned and you know rather than there being a first aid protocol where he's then you know sent to A&E or his parents are called he was sanctioned and actually kept for longer than the school day and you know when the mum shared this with the community there was a lot of outrage there were a lot of parents that you know wanted to go to the school were demanding justice um, I did get involved I just kind of wrote a letter to the school I couldn't actually attend the school as I was working in a school on the other end of London but um, you know it was able to be resolved in a way where you know I am kind of a Against, I'm really against pylons where schools are kind of exposed um, on social media. I think the more appropriate thing to do is at the school and to speak to their head teacher and SLT directly and to resolve an issue in a way that you know kind of works for everyone. But I think for me, um, I think it's a really common thing for uh, parents to not be involved in the school enough. But when there is an issue involving a member, a student in in the wider community, a lot of parents it does kind of spark this uh, outrage and understandably so by the way it's not something I'm against I think it's something that's actually quite good um, it does kind of spark this community feel where you know people want to stand up for for you know the students in their community and this kind of feeling that they are quite hard done by or victims of institutional racism and I think the next point that I kind of wanted to touch on is you know I think Somali kids in schools do face a bit of an identity crisis I know that in Somalia there was never a need for Somalis to identify as black people everyone just identified as Somali so the um, existence of you know being like a race I, I mean anyone's welcome to correct me if I'm wrong but I think it's idea of belonging to a race started when moved um, to the UK and I think um, um, what was I going to say I think I think that's quite a big thing for uh, a lot of Somali children because when I was at school people wouldn't really refer to me as black even if I refer to myself as black you know people would say no but you're you're a Mali you know you're Somali you're not black um, whereas I felt that Somalis were still subject to the same kind of um, institutional racism and prejudice as other black people were and at the same time you know being simultaneously Muslim I think it's really common for um, Somali girls to be very overtly Muslim in the sense that a lot of the time they wear a headscarf from a very young age and so can be identified by anyone as um, a Muslim. So I kind of wanted to ask you guys again anyone in the audience and any of the speakers are welcome to take on what are your thoughts on the fact that Somalis fall into both groups and Sarah I guess this can apply to um, 
Bang- the Bangladeshi community as well. What are you guys' thoughts on ethnic minority groups that fall into, you know, an ethnic minority race, whether that's black or Asian, and also are visibly Muslim at the same time? Do you think that impacts the barriers that they face in either school or wider society? I think... Yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, Yasmin, you've raised um, quite a lot of really important points there um, about sort of, you know, factors that, um, you know, that, you know, that, that affect, you know, ethnic minorities, whether they're Somalis or any other issues. But, you, you know, you, you are right in terms of Somalis generally, um, you know, first, of, first and foremost, you know, they're black and uh and then Muslim, and then the Muslim, and you know, and that could be perceived as you know issues that you know that might become barriers. I, I do, I, I genuinely do feel uh, that uh, we need to come under, we need to overcome that notion, and we do really need to to think beyond that. Uh, you know, you know, um, because you know, even you know. Comparing now to when I was growing up in the 90s, um, you know, the country has moved on uh, and, and there are opportunities. I genuinely do feel that whether if you're, you know, you're, you know, black or Asian or Somali or mixed race, if you genuinely believe in your ability uh, and, uh, and, you, and you work hard, uh, uh, you will get the opportunities and you will get the breaks. You know, you know. If if if, if I can become a head teacher, um, you know, uh, you know, anyone else can. So I think the 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 the, the moral in the argument is that yes, there there will be barriers, but there will be barriers everywhere. But you have you also need to make sure that you work hard. And I think what we need to instill in our young people is that. You know, in life, you will face challenges, um, but the the one way to overcome these challenges is to work hard and to make sure that you uh, nothing's going to come to you. You know, uh, on your lap, you, you you need to work hard and you need to be determined and you need to be ambitious and you need to put the effort in in order to be able to reap the benefit at the uh, you know at the later stage. That's what I would say. Thank you, Omar. Badger, oh, Sarah, either of you? you I think um, being growing up Somali now and growing up Somali when we were growing up is two different things. I think when we were when we were growing up, it wasn't cool to be Somali and like you 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 were either um, you weren't black enough or or you, there was that divide between um, black Caribbean and black African and also um, Somalian as well as as also like a Somali, like you're, I know my parents at times were like, you're Somali, but don't hang out with certain people because you might be brushed in a similar kind of way. But I think now um, there's a lot more, I could talk from North, where, where, I'm, where I work, there's a, there's a lot of pride of being viewed as Somali. And it's, and I feel like when you are in an area where the, there's a large Somali population, it's you're just identified as as Somali. You're even in a tick box in our school, we've got a tick for Somali um, because there is that large population. So you're not put in into that into the category as 
uh, black British or black Caribbean or black African, you're put down as black Somali. Um, so I don't know about identity crisis. I think there is a disconnect between um, the parents and the students being cultural and like being um, a Londoner or being uh, more Western than the parents um, and f- moving away from like traditional kind of ways and cultural kind of ways. And I think that's where the identity crisis come along, I think. Yeah, thank you, Bahja. Go um, on, Sarah. I think it's. I think the idea around identity and the role that identity plays in your sense of self and empowerment is really critical. Um, I think you know, there's so much research that goes to show like a sense of pride in oneself can foster like confidence and self-esteem in a way that not much else can. So I think there's a there's a role here that schools can play around the celebration of identities and community and you know like I, I really like what Basha was saying about how it's it's you know there's a sense of pride and I think schools can also play a role in celebrating that pride and I think something that we have in schools is a, is a bit of a culture of fear around oh you know we where where are non where we're in a school you know we don't want to have any sort of partisanship towards any particular community but I think actually uh, success in building that self-esteem and confidence in young people requires schools to be braver in embracing, you know, the wonderful communities that we work with, but embracing those cultural communities and the religious communities and really are really being sort of like a bastion for like cultural diversity in the community. Um, and, you know, in, in, in my school, we've got lots of different communities, but we most recently last year did something there was a culture day and all schools are always super hesitant when it comes days. I can understand why um, because of the behavior. But I think that when culture day happened, it was, it was, it was actually really magic. Like kids felt so proud coming in to show off their, their, you know, their cultural dress and talking about, it. I mean, the biggest criticism we received from young people was the fact that, we don't just want to wear our clothes, we want to talk about our communities. And the sense that that pride exists is something that if we as schools can tap into, that's when I think we can actually do something really meaningful around bringing communities with us. Because we've talked a lot about, you know, how we communicate with parents, but I think we need to like step away from telling parents and teaching parents and saying to parents, this is what you need to do X, Y, and Z having those difficult conversations but also bringing those communities into school to bring them with us um in making kids feel good about themselves thank you sarah honestly i love that and i was actually thinking that just before you said it so i used to work at the same school as sarasawa and last year like culture day was is one of my best memories there were um for the smileys amongst us um there were Somali kids I don't even teach, I didn't even know that were coming up to my school for a whole week before it saying, Miss, are you going to come to school in a dinner? Like, are you going to wear it? And I thought, you know what? I can't let our people down. I was the only female Somali teacher in the school. Um, and you know what? I came into school in a dinner. So many children, you know, wanted to take photos. It was such a lovely day. I saw the children in such a different light. I learned so much about their communities. You know, the children were so proud and I loved it. And I thought back to my own school days. Um, I went to a predominantly white school and I thought if there was a culture day, would I have come to school in a dinner? And I honestly think I wouldn't have. Um, I don't think I would have done it. I don't think um, I'd kind of grown up with that same confidence in my culture kind of in instilled 
in me at that time at that particular age um so you know it was so nice to see the experiences that the children in Newham got to have so I totally agree with what you're saying Sarah and um, I'm just before I move on to the next speaker just want to remind you guys about John Cat Educational remember the show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational a leading publisher of books directories educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond um you can visit John bookshop.com to explore their full range of titles um i can see that a head teacher has requested to speak um is there anything you wanted to share i'll pass over to you yes hi can you hear me yasmin i can Brilliant. thank you um yeah just to say um i've been listening and i actually wanted to just listen at first but the discussions were so amazing that i wanted to come up and speak um so i am um, of Somali heritage as well um, and I'm a head teacher in a primary school um, in Tower Hamlet so I just I love the discussion um, today and I think there's so many things that were said today that I probably won't echo but I wanted to emphasize you know um, I live by the phrase it takes a village to raise a child and I think it's so important that um, you know the fat all the stakeholders you know the, the, the families that we serve the children the, the school we all work together um, ultimately to um, support our pupils to kind of um, progress and I know the topic um, that we're discussing today is very much around why do Somali boys um, underachieve? And I think I think Beha just said this um, earlier, but you know, high, I cannot emphasise how important high maintaining high expectations is um, um, is key. You know, um, but also similarly building those positive relationships. And when I think about, you know, I grew up in the borough that I now am a head in, and you know, I was a child once, and you know, it, it is there are many challenges um, that we all face. Um, in, in education and I think building positive relationships is really really important and you know within our community I think there is this notion around boys and particularly around you know they have to be tough and they don't show emotion and you know and it's and and actually you know they 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 do need to and it is really really important to build positive relationships um with 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 the boys um I've got three children and my eldest is 16 years old and every day I'm you know I'm getting to know a different <laughs> I'm learning something different about him as he's growing up and and actually I think as, as Omar said being a parent as well as an educator actually you see both sides and you get to see actually how challenging it is um you know when you're raising your children and then similarly thinking about the communities that you serve um how you know you want to make sure that you know you you also make that difference now I, i'm i do want to give some advice because i think um yasmin said earlier about you know being there might be some parents that are also on here um but i think these are advices that i live by as well as a parent so when i go to my children's parents evenings as well or if i go to the school these are things that i look for um so i do hope um you, you kind of find this um helpful i do think if you come from a uh, a household where there is, you know, mum and dad. I think it's really, really important that any meeting that you go to within the school that you both attend, um, because there's something really powerful, and you actually take your 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 just child or children, because there's something quite powerful and empowering when you all go together. That actually means that you know you've taken the time, you know, you know it's really important, and you want to celebrate um, their achievements, um, regardless of how big or how small it is. I think that's really, really important. 
I also do think that, you know, attending meetings isn't just, you know, parents evening normally is like once a term. Um, but I do think that attending a meeting once a term isn't sometimes enough. And so therefore, if, for example, your child is underachieving or um, they're not making the progress that is expected, that actually you do have those regular meetings um that you do attend because then it shows your child that you want them to do really well and you you care about their their learning but also it allows you the space to then think about what are they finding difficult um because we all find things difficult and it's about how we then work together um to to, to support them um with that and I think for me, I go more because obviously being an educator, I actually go more for my child than I do for the school because I want my child to know that, you know, um, um, I'm, I'm, you know, we're there and we, we kind of want to listen. Um, I think um, the next thing that I want to talk about is around interests and enrichment. I know we're talking about achievement and academics, but actually something that I think is really, really important, particularly with the Somali community. Again, um, 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 it might be the same for other communities, but it is around enrichment. And actually really, you know, I know the phrase get to know your child is like, well, I do know my child, but we live in an era where, you know, um, technology also raises our child with us. And actually when I say get to know your child, you know it's about getting to know uh, getting to know their interests you know and actually finding out about what is it that they enjoy what is it because that will path this um journey for you know what they want to aspire to be one day and really getting to know you know what do they enjoy what tickles them what do they you know what activities do they like and then exposing them to those activities where you know because cultural capital enrichment is so important um for 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 our children um and really you know getting to know like my my eldest he's 16 years old you know when he was younger he absolutely hated writing I didn't push him to to, to write however what I then did is try to find out what other sorts of things that he likes and then I gave him this hook of writing for a real purpose if that makes sense rather than let's get your book out and let's just practice these grammar um, expectations which to him you know is he didn't enjoy um but I think, yeah, just really kind of that enrichment. I'm, I'm a real advocate for, for, for enrichment and like exposure to um, kind of clubs, activities, visits, um, because, you know, it's so, you know, that this phrase that goes around a lot on social media around you can't be what you can't see. But actually, that isn't just around the educators and the people that work with you. That is also to do with the aspirations. If you want to become a particular um, professional and you don't know a lot about it or you don't know what the building steps are for it, I think it's, you know, it's, it's really important to kind of um, expose them um, to that. Thank you. Wow, thank you. Can I just thank you so much for that for various reasons. I think all the advice you gave there is so valuable. And I know that everybody, you know, listening to this um, is able to hear that and, you know, will relate to and agree with a lot of the threads of what you said. And I do also want to say when I started this about an hour and a half ago, I didn't actually know I had not come across mm. any other teachers that were Somali and that's you know what really stood out to me I know Omar said I asked him are you the only Somali head teacher and he said no I'm sure there are more so you know it's really nice in the same 
session to have come across another Somali head teacher who is, you know, um, working in the area that they grew up in. I think that's really, really inspiring. And so I wanted to put a question to you both. So to you and to Omar, um, for everyone that's listening who might be a teacher, uh, what advice would you give, you know, to Somali teachers who are in any stage, you know, whether they're starting out, whether they're in middle or senior leadership, what advice would you give to Somali teachers in schools? And it's a, it's a, it's a good question, uh, Yasmin. Um, wh- wh- I, I think um, uh, any advice that I would give to any anyone who is uh, starting and um, sort of their teaching career um, would be to say, look, you know, really need to believe in yourself. Um, and uh, I think being in this particular profession is 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 a noble one uh, because you have a direct impact on you know on children's lives and you know and and, and uh, you're shaping the future so what i would say is um do your research um you know work really hard uh, put the effort in but but also to be ambitious i think being ambitious is really important uh, uh, and not just to settle for a classroom teacher you know obviously you know it does take a bit of time to sort of move up the ladder but you know have the ambition uh, that sort of 10 12 13 years time um, you you will also become a head teacher not to just limit yourself to a middle leader or a classroom teacher um, but 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 also at the same time uh, in order for that to happen you know you know you know you, you have to put the effort in uh, and, and the hard work and if you do put the the effort and the hard work in to your profession and, and anything you do in life, you will re- reap the benefits. So, so for example, um, I've never done the same role for more than three years um, because a I was good at what I did, uh, but b uh, I, I also worked really hard uh, and and uh, and as a result. I reap the benefits uh, of, you know, promotion. And if someone said to me, if someone said to me, you know, when I first started teaching that you'll become a head teacher one day, uh, I didn't. I, 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 I would, I, you know, I would tell them that, you know, you know, that they, they must be joking and they need to wake up from their dream. But uh, once I sort of recognize my ability and once I recognize that actually if I work really hard I will get the opportunities that I deserve then I really started believing in that and uh, you know success and promotion will come to you if you work hard and you put the effort in I would say. Yes thank you. Sorry. I'll go on now. No, I I agree. I was actually giggling as um, Amr was speaking because I I completely agree with everything that he he said. Um, I think it is hard um, and I think Amr would agree. Like it's not, being ahead is is a very hard um, job and it it does take hard work um, to, to, to to get to it, but it's possible, you know, I, you know, thinking about my journey um, through headship, um, I think number one, what I would say is um, being in an environment that allows you to grow is really crucial. 
I think you hear, um, you know, lots of um, kind of stories where um, I've got lots of, um, you know, um, friends who really want to progress, but they're unfortunately in environments where, you know, they don't see that potential or they, they don't have the capacity to grow. Um, I think it's, it's really hard. Um, so I think being in that environment where you have the space to grow is really um, key. Um, I think echoing what Omar said um, around really developing your pedagogy and practice. So within the roles, um, I found it really beneficial. I, I love to use the word shadowing a lot. Um, and the nice thing about when I use the shadow is um I'm not actually in that post and so therefore I'm shadowing somebody but I'm kind of learning on the spot as well and and so sometimes when you apply for a position then you are accountable for for, for ensuring that you complete that role to your best because you know um ultimately you're being paid for that position um and you have to make sure that you follow things through um however i found shadowing really helpful because i would then say you know can i shadow somebody or i actually i'm really interested in this area can i shadow so and so and it meant that i was learning lots of things and so therefore when it came to doing the position i was ready to do that position because i think there's there's nothing more you know um demoralizing than applying for a position and then you don't get it and then you're told oh you didn't get it because of a b and c but actually using the opportunity to shadow somebody within the within that role means that you're picking up things and you're working on yourself um and I think the third thing I would say is probably feedback. Be open to take feedback. Um, whether you agree with it or not, um, it will always make you develop um, your confidence, but as well as um, seeing from another perspective how you can do better. So if you apply for a position and you don't get it, go back and ask for feedback and say, right, what is it that I was missing? What do I need to work on? But similarly, asking the school, how you, you know, can, how can you support me to sure that I get better at these areas so I think but requesting feedback you know can you come in and see how I do that can I show you this how how would you say that I could do this better and just being open um um to that I think is 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 really um key thank you um could I just ask what your name is um Hodo. Hodo, yes. Hodo, thank you so much. Um, so we're actually coming to the end now and I will need to draw this to a close. But I can see that there is an autism group that have sent through a really, really important question about a lot of Savali children having undiagnosed needs. So I'm thinking now, guys, two Sundays from now to just do a part two and maybe focus on things like unmet. Uh, needs and things like that in, in the Somali community I think that would be a lovely topic um, but for now I really really want to thank you all so thank you so much Omar um, for all of your contributions and for agreeing to be a guest today same with you Hoda it's so lovely to meet you I didn't know that there was a Somali head teacher in a primary school just in the adjacent borough from me so that's been really nice and inspiring to learn thank you so much also to uh, Sarah Sawa and to Bahja um, I think I mentioned this earlier but Sarah Sawa and I used to work together and she was like my biggest icon and role model in teaching and Bahja also um, a very very good friend of mine who I've learned a lot from in teaching so thank you to everyone that's listened to Fatima and to everyone else who sent through questions so we'll do a part two on this um, two weeks from now and so I will share everything on my Twitter again and thank you so much to our speakers and to everyone that's listened and I hope you all enjoy the rest of your day You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. 
We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.